worshiping, I was feeling uh, two different things that one of them has been a dream in my heart for the last two years. Um, both of them have been a dream in my heart the last two years, ever since I came here the first, the first time. The first thing that I felt like God was saying was that it is time for the leadership of this place and the people of this place and the prayer rooms around this area to go to Israel. I think like the time is coming near where um, it cannot wait anymore. That it is time for you guys to go and I've heard all the reasons why it can't happen but it is time to say yes it can happen and it needs to happen. And I, I feel like God wants to birth that tonight and that this is something that has to happen. This is not just about doing a tour, but this is something that has to happen. The, the leadership of the Houses of Prayer, none of them in Dallas have been to Israel, none of them. And also some of the churches, none of them have been to Israel. And it is time for the leadership, the people that are in the House of Prayer, uh, the people that are kind of leading the, the way of the prayer movement about praying for Israel, they have to be there. For God to take you to the next level and for God to birth something new in you. And so I feel like I'm supposed to release that today, that it's time to start pressing into and praying into how are we going to go to Israel and who's going to go to Israel. And it doesn't, doesn't matter what finances it takes and how it's going to happen, God's going to release it and it will happen. But I feel like we're moving into a critical season that it can't wait. It has to happen either this next year or the year to come and it cannot wait any longer than that. The second thing that I felt was that out of this, um, God is going to birth... Um, He's going he's gonna to birth something in this house and through this house for the Dallas area and that uh, he's going to birth something like the Israel Mandate Conference here and that it won't be just about uh, praying for Israel but it'll be a real push for the church to make a covenant and stand with Israel and it'll be so focused on the revival that God wants to bring worldwide and not just about, well, let's pray for Israel and that's it. But it'll, it'll, it'll be focused on God bringing revival into the nations. And I feel like the first step for it is you and the leadership of this, of the Dallas, the prayer rooms in this area. And I've been telling, I've been, I mean, I've talked with them about it and it's on my heart. We've talked with Don about it, but I feel like it, we're moving into a time where it cannot wait anymore. And this is the first step. You guys have to come to Israel. You cannot keep talking about praying for Israel without being there, without having stepped foot there. What Abraham, what God told Abraham was go walk the land before I can give it to you. He said, go walk the land. And so before God can give you uh, an authority uh, or this house, an authority to birth this thing, you have to walk the land. You have to be there. And then the next step, God wants to birth something in the Dallas uh, Metroplex area, the DFW area, is uh, I really, this has been a dream in my heart that God will birth an Israel mandate here in Dallas because this is such a key city. And it's happening in Kansas City. It's happening on the East Coast. But this is one of the biggest cities in America. This is one of the uh, most uh, churched cities in America. And yet it's one of the most quiet places in America on this issue. And then the third word has to do with Acts chapter 1. And I, this is where I want to start my, my word today. So we're in verse 4. And he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I'm jumping to verse uh, 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called 
Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so God gives them the promise that he, he is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And then the first thing he tells them is go into a room and spend 10 days together. And it says that they devoted themselves to prayer, but it also says that they were with one accord. Now, if you read the story of the disciples and how that ended in the book of John, they weren't exactly in one accord. The disciples had failed Jesus. They all ran away on the night before his crucifixion. And if you read in John chapter 20, when Jesus is about to, or Jesus actually rises from the dead, and Peter and John actually compete about who's going to go to the, to the tomb first. And John makes a specific point about pointing out this competition that they had between them. About who was going to reach first. It says that uh, Peter was first, and then, uh, or John ran faster and reached the first, but then actually Peter went in first. And he keeps mentioning this wordplay about who was there first and who walked in first. And there's this real competitiveness between the disciples about who was first. And then in the end, when Jesus is talking to Peter and telling him to lead his sheep, and then John is walking behind them. So you can imagine, kind of, if you would imagine two friends walking together, and then this little guy walking behind, following them, wanting to hear what they're saying. And uh, my wife says that I'm, uh, I'm nosy. So that's kind of what he would be. He was kind of the nosy guy. He wants to know what's going on in the little circle. And, he, and, and Peter gets offended, and he says, Jesus, who is that man to you? And so he's not even saying his name. I mean, this guy, th these two people, John and Peter, had walked together for three and a half years with Jesus. And you would suppose that they would become good friends by that time. Three and a half years together is quite a long time to spend with someone. They pretty much did everything together. But by the end of those three and a half years, Peter's still not even able to say his name. And he tells Jesus, who is this man to you? And so they were not in one accord. They were obviously not in one accord. The disciples were not united. They were not in one accord. They were not able to be together. And Jesus is about to release to them the greatest promise in the history of mankind. He's about to pour out the Holy Spirit over them. He's going to fill them with the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour out revival. He's going to give them power. He's going to give them leadership. He's going to give them authority. But if they were not united, they were going to destroy each other. They were going to run over one another. They were going to hurt each other. They were going to put each other down. They were going to compete with each other. They were going to be filled with pride. Until they were not united, God could not give them that promise. And so what he tells them is go and spend 10 days in one room together. If any of you have been to the upper room, it's not exactly a big place. And it says that there were probably about 120 people there. Now, what do you guys think they did for 10 days? They prayed 24-7 for 10 days? What do you do for 10 days with someone nonstop? You better, you better figure out how to get along for those 10 days. You better figure out how you're going to get along, how you're not going to start arguing, competing with each other. Who's going to lead the prayer meeting? Well, Jesus told me that I'm supposed to lead. Who's going to lead the, the, the worship? God had to settle those disputes between them. He had to bring them to a place of unity with one another, to where they were willing to lay each other's lives down for one another. 
And until they couldn't be in that moment, in that place, the Holy Spirit could not come upon them. They weren't ready for it. God cannot give them that promise until they're willing to put down everything for each other. And then God can give them the authority. God can give them the power. He can give them the Holy Spirit. But until that moment, all that was going to happen was that we're going to hurt each other. That we're going to destroy each other with that promise that was supposed to bring them uh, revival. And so I see the church coming into this place where we're fighting for unity. God's taken us into a place where we must fight for the unity of the church. Or even within our communities, we have to fight for unity within our communities. We have to put our lives down. We have to be willing to put our lives down and walk in humility and prefer each other. Have the very spirit that Christ had in him. To be willing to put down our lives and say, I want you to succeed. I want to prefer you above me. Because we're in this together, because we want to see the same thing, we want to be in one accord, with one mind, with one goal. We want to see the Holy Spirit poured out. We want to see revival come. But until we're not willing to be in unity, until we're not willing to be in covenant with one another, we won't see it happen. Or else we're just going to run over each other. We're just going to compete with one another. And we're going to hurt others. We're going to end up doing more hurt than good if we're not willing to put everything down for the rest of the people in that community. And so for 10 days, they're figuring this out. I mean, they're not just praying together, they're literally in 10 days of intense coming together, the process of becoming one and coming into one accord. Now, if you know Jewish people, that in itself, that they were able to spend 10 days together, 120 Jewish people, that is a miracle. We have a joke that it says, two Jewish people, three opinions. That's how it works. The fact that they were able to spend 10 days together without, just that word, with one accord, that is a miracle. And then the promise can come. And then God's Holy Spirit can be poured out. And what happens next, before the Holy Spirit is poured out, is that they're walking in humility and they're walking in so much humility that they're willing to bring up someone else to be an apostle. Now, in most cases, people would see that as a threat to their ministry, wouldn't they? If you raise up somebody else to be an apostle right next to you, then it's like, wait a minute, he's competing with me in the natural realm, sort of. The, the ministries kind of collide. Well, what, he's, is he, what is he going to do? And what's calling him to do? What about me? And what is my place? Is he going to take my space, my place, my, my, my ministry? And the last apostle, the last apostle betrayed Jesus. That was Judas. And so there's this open office. There's, Peter sees it. He says something is missing. We're not in fullness. Something is missing. There's a piece missing. And we're not going to see the promise. Peter realizes this. We're not going to see the promise until this missing piece is restored. It's not going to happen. God purposed that there would be 12 apostles. We're not going to see it until there's 12 apostles. We're not going to do it with 11. It can't work. It won't happen. So they have to come to this place of humility, of willing to say, okay, we're going to put in somebody else. I mean, they had just been hurt. Imagine having just been hurt by someone who was to be an apostle. They were betrayed by him. And then they have to say, well, we're going to have to trust someone else with that position and that they won't do the same thing. 
All of us have been hurt by people, right? We've all been hurt by people. And it takes that trust to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe for the best. I'm going to trust this person. Others may have failed, but I'm going to believe for the best out of this person. And that's kind of what they're going through. That This is very strong emotion, this very intense process. They had just been betrayed and almost killed by, by this man who had betrayed Jesus. And now they're having to restore, they're having to put someone else into that office. And saying, well, we're going to have to trust them. And I remember Asher was teaching about this, and um, I thought this was very significant. It's not exactly what this scripture talks about, but there's an idea in here about a piece missing. Something is missing for the promise to come, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Let's go to Joel chapter 2. sure if I've ever shared about this here, but I'm going to share about it anyways. Everyone knows verse 28, okay? And it talks about, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, I can promise you that most of you have read the scripture and have never actually understood what it means. What it means, because this this scripture has been misinterpreted from the original Hebrew. And there's a very, very important verse in this scripture that has been completely lost in translation okay and it's verse 32 and if you read it in the Hebrew verse 32 is actually the beginning of everything that happens from verse 28 and onward in the Hebrew it actually works backwards he gives the way a lot of times the Hebrew works in the prophets is that he gives what happens first and then he gives the reason for it for why it happens so in verse 32 he gives the reason for why it happens and there's a key word in Hebrew it's uh, it's called um, key that's how you say it in Hebrew and it's translated here for in that day or and it shall come to pass but this word signifies in, in other words it says because so if you were to put because here then you would understand that everything that happens there is because of something and there's two things that are mentioned here that have to do um, with this promise okay and the first one is this and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape okay that's the first part okay in Hebrew it means that um, in Jerusalem there will be or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because in Jerusalem there will be, and the word is not salvation, 
okay? Or uh, the, in some, it says, sorry, not those who escape, okay? The word is, for that is not just those who escape. The word for that is remnant. In Hebrew, the word for that is remnant. Now, that's very significant because a remnant signifies a, a spiritual significance, not just escaping from something. And then the word among the survivors, and this is the second part, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Okay, so these two, these two I, um, parts of the verse, okay, what it, I'm going to reward it and say it exactly how it says it in the Hebrew, okay? In the Hebrew it would say, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, because in Mount Zion there will be a remnant among the remnant that the Lord has called. That's how it says it in the Hebrew. Now what does that mean? You have two remnants here, okay? In the Hebrew it actually says that there's two remnants and one of those specifically talks about a remnant who are survivors. So th that part is, a little, is translated a little bit better. And so it actually works, okay, if you look at the timeline, the end is the beginning and it works backwards. So then there's this first group of remnant right here. This is the first part. What is that? The survivors. The way I see it, okay, the first remnant that you can have of Israel are literally the physical survivors. It talks about a physical survivor in the Hebrew of the Holocaust who go into Israel and all of a sudden you have a nation. Okay, and it's not just from the Holocaust, but all of a sudden the people, that the Jewish people in exile return to Israel. The Israel becomes a nation and all of a sudden physically something that hasn't existed in 2,000 years becomes a reality once again. There is a physical remnant of survivors of 2,000 years of exile. Something that has not been seen in, hist in history. Okay, and this is the first part of the remnant, okay? But in the Hebrew, it talks about a physical remnant. You can understand it in the Hebrew as a physical remnant. But then you have the second part. And what it says in the Hebrew is that out of that physical remnant, God is going to call another remnant. Now that's interesting. So first you have a remnant in a physical realm. And all of a sudden out of that, God calls another remnant. Who can that be? And that has to that if you that has to pertain, if you look at it, it has to pertain to a spiritual remnant. It has to pertain to just like God tells um, um, Elijah when he's in the mountain, he says, Seven thousand have not yet bowed their knee to Baal. The word that God uses there is a remnant. There is still a remnant in Israel. That word pertains to a spiritual remnant, a group of people who still call on the name of God. And that's what this verse is talking about. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because in Jerusalem there is a remnant. Now that's very, very interesting because here we look at Israel and you have a physical remnant that comes back into Israel. It becomes a nation again. Then all of a sudden you have a spiritual remnant in the 70s. The messianic body in Israel becomes a reality, something that has not existed in 2,000 years. Jewish people who believe in Jesus 
something that did not exist before that. This happened during the Jesus movement. That most of the leadership today in Israel came to the faith during the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. And so all of a sudden you have this messianic remnant, a small body. In the 70s it was probably about 400 people. In the 90s it was about 3,000. Today it's about 15,000. So all of a sudden you have this spiritual remnant, a group of Jewish people who believe in Jesus and call on him living in Jerusalem and in Israel. A reality that did not exist before that. Could that be tied in to Acts chapter 1? And what happens there? Could that reality, that, that missing piece coming back to life, could that have a significance? And if you look at Acts chapter 2, when Peter um, prophesies, or he actually paraphrases the prophecy from Joel 2, he doesn't finish the prophecy. He doesn't finish paraphrasing it. He stops because he can't continue because that prophecy pertains to another time. And he mentions a small part of Joel chapter 2, a small part of that prophecy, just a part about the Holy Spirit being poured out, and, but he can't continue past that because it's not time. It's not time for that to happen. And they were drawing on something that was going to happen many, many years later, but was, they were like taking a small part of that prophecy and they were, it was becoming a reality in their day. Just like today, we can pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. We, we talk about Joel chapter 2 becoming a reality, but we don't apply it to the real meaning of Joel chapter 2. We don't say, oh, this is the end time revival. We don't say, we just experienced Joel chapter 2 in all of its contest. We might experience, just like the first apostles, we might experience small portions, a small t token of Joel chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit is poured out and we see prophecy and dreams and visions and the Holy Spirit coming upon us and the power. But it's not really the fulfillment. We all understand that. It's not really the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 because that scripture pertains to something else and it pertains to a specific time in a very specific context and for that prophecy to come to pass there has to be a remnant a spiritual remnant living and calling on God in the midst of Jerusalem that's what this prophecy says and that's what's been missed on for many many years because of the mistranslation I didn't come to this on my own. I remember we were looking at this and Asher, uh, my, one of my pastors began to talk about this and we were looking at it together. And all of a sudden, we, like we started seeing it. Like it's been mistranslated. The English is not translated correctly. And so that's one of the biggest significance, uh, significances for why Israel exists today. If we look at the reality of what's happening in Israel, of a remnant coming back and then a spiritual remnant, remnant being called out from that physical remnant, all of a sudden this scripture that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Could that become a reality soon? Could that one phrase become a reality soon? This scripture gives a lot of context into what we see happening. Not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. See, it's so much more than just Israel becoming a nation. It's about a remnant rising up within Israel. And that's what this prophecy focuses on. And together we are nearing this place where all of a sudden we're like, 
wait a minute, this can actually happen. I mean, the parts are, are there. The pieces are in play. This can actually happen. We don't know when, but it can actually happen. Do you guys realize that? Do you realize that this scripture is like, we're, we're pressing into the scripture as we speak because there is a body of believers in Israel. That one reality that has lacked for 2,000 years is now real. And we're pressing into this scripture, but now we're actually at a time where this can really happen. This can really happen. But it takes that Acts 1 reality because it won't happen without the unity and it won't happen without the covenant. It won't happen without the, the, the apostles coming together and being willing to say we are one. We are together in this. We are in covenant. We're going to die for each other. We're going to give everything for each other. We're going to be committed to one another. So what we see happening is that this one missing piece is now being restored. But now what really needs to happen, and this is what the enemy is attacking, is the unity between all those pieces. If, if the enemy can bring division, offense, bad theology, hatred, whatever you want to call it, if he can bring division, he can try to, to prevent or push back. I don't believe the enemy will ever prevent God's promises from happening. But he will do everything in his power to destroy his people and to try to push that back, to make a last stand and a fight against that promise. And so what is he going to try to do? He's going to try to bring division and he's going to try to bring uh, offense between the, all the pieces that exist. And if you look at Romans where it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, I almost see that as the 11, I mean, I kind of see that as the 11 apostles. That's the 11 apostles, the fullness of the Gentiles. And then there's one piece missing. There's that one. And for 2,000 years, that one piece was lacking. It wasn't, it wasn't there. And the church was, was given the, the, the authority or more the responsibility to keep his word, to keep the faith. But then that last piece begins to come back. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. We are living in significant times. If you want to know why to pray for Israel, I just gave it to you. If you want to know why pray for revival in Israel, I just gave it to you. Because every believer, every person that comes to the faith in Israel, every person that gets set on fire, every person that gets filled with the Holy Spirit, we are one step closer and one step closer and one step closer. Because that's the way God chose to do it. He decided that he's going to do it this way. He's going to make it to where his people are responsible to partner with him. His people are responsible for being obedient to his word. All right, we're in Revelations. 
chapter 12. story, I hope you guys can see it, there's this whole story about a dragon and a woman and a, and a child, and uh, actually I, I shared this scripture quite a bit while I was in LA, uh, because this scripture I believe pertains so much to the media world, um, and LA being a, kiss, a key city um, with Hollywood and what's being, the, the, the word that's being driven out of there. Um, especially pertaining to Israel. So this, this scripture, I'm not going to read it all. This scripture talks about a woman giving birth and then the dragon trying to make war with a woman who gives, who gives birth and then a child being born who's going to rule the nations. Obviously, that's talking about Jesus. And it says that uh, the woman fled into the wilderness uh, where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. So that 1,260 days right there, we know right away that's the end times. Um, if you believe that that's 10 times, I do. That's three and a half years. It's 42 months. That's, I mean, that's what's repeated throughout all of the book of Revelations. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. It comes over and over and over again. I don't think it could be anything else other than the time of tribulation. And so here we find ourselves in the, in the context of the tribulation, okay? And the, the, the dragon... Okay, in verse 13, it says that he's been cast down to the earth. And he knows that his time is short. So he knows that the kingdom of heaven is about to come near. It's coming near. It's about to break in. It's, a, it's about to come back on earth. And he's going to do this one last push. So he knows what we were talking about. Joel chapter 2. There it comes. They're pressing into it. They're, they're about to get right into it. And the time is coming. The kingdom of God, he knows this time is short. The time is short. There's a body of believers in Israel. It's alive. It's kicking. It's growing. And the time is short. And what is he going to do? It says that the serpent, okay, the, or the dragon, the serpent, he will start persecuting the woman. And it says that he poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. And now this woman is not talking about the mother of Jesus. It's not talking about Mary. There's a greater reality here, a big picture. Who is this woman? I mean, she had just given birth to Jesus. So why is she still in play? Why is she even still important? And why is the enemy still persecuting the woman? I mean, she had if she had already fulfilled her purpose, why is she still there? So it turns out that she hasn't exactly fulfilled all of her purpose. Because I believe that this woman talks about Israel. And so we know that Israel gives birth to the Messiah. And that's one of the promises, that he gives birth to the Messiah, that the Messiah will come back, will come through the people of Israel, through the Jewish people in the line of David. But he wasn't done there. The people of Israel weren't done there. And Jesus gives this great promise, this prophecy, with a, a, such a consequence. And he says, I will not return until my people say, Blessed is he who comes back in the name of the Lord. And that promise, that those words, when they came out of the mouth of Jesus, they set in motion what was going to happen in the rest of history until the day that Jesus comes back. Because that promise 
gives purpose now for the existence of the Jewish people until that day or else they wouldn't have had to be there or else that woman would have been done the moment that she gave birth to Jesus that's it we don't need her anymore her promise is fulfilled it's over with that's a lot of what replacement theology says their promise is over with they're done they're not needed but that's not what we see in scripture she's not finished she still has something to do she has a purpose she has a, uh, a calling that God has placed on her. And so the serpent begins to come and persecute the woman. And it says, notice the wording, it's very interesting. He says that a river came out of his mouth. Okay, and then afterwards it says that the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the flood. As prayer people, that mouth has a lot of significance. And I think the wording here is on purpose. It's not by accident. Okay? The flood comes out of one person's mouth, and then somebody else has to open his mouth and swallow that flood. And there's a, there's a, a, a battle here between intercessors and what the world is saying. And the enemy will come like a flood with, with lies, with the word of lie. And I, the way I look at it, you might disagree with me. The way I look at it is almost like the enemy is actually praying out something that is false and, and a lie. Okay, his declaration is like a prayer. The same way we pray out declarations from God, the enemy is praying out declarations against the people. And so he is opening up his mouth with lies like a flood he's persecuting the woman and he's not just doing it physically he's doing it with his mouth and that is so important for the reality of today and what we see the physical realm might not be there yet I mean the the war and everything we see in Zechariah and Joel but the, the reality of the mouth is already there we were talking about this earlier. The reality of the media, the lies of the enemy, the declarations, the theology, what's coming out of people's mouth, and even what's not coming out of people's mouth is like a flood that's coming after the people of Israel. And the only intention that, the, that it has is to destroy it. There is no other intention. It's not for justice. It's not for uh, peace. It's not for anything else. It's to destroy his people. That's the, that's the reason behind it. It's spiritual. It's not political. It's to destroy his people. And then the earth, which could signify the nations, the people, the whole earth. I don't know who, but it, it talks about the earth being something whole, not just a specific point. The earth opens up its mouth. And so God gives this responsibility for someone or somebody to open his mouth to protect that woman that's being persecuted. But unless somebody opens up his mouth, that's not going to happen. Now, it's there, so it will happen, but somebody has to do it. And I believe that that's one of the calls that God has placed on the church in this hour that they are to open up their mouth for truth and justice in God's word. That you have been given the responsibility by your mouth to declare the truth of God. And if the church won't do it, nobody else will do it. And this has been one of the key issues that, I, that I've been uh, just praying about and we've been talking about is that 
what the church stays silent on, that's what the world will take and run with. And the church has been silent about this in many places. See, in many churches, you might have a couple or someone who's in charge of their Israel ministry, and for some reason, it's always kind of, I won't say it. Um, you always have someone who's in charge of the Israel ministry. And it's like, well, if you're interested about Israel, if you want to join an Israel prayer group, you know, go talk to them and they do it in their house. Um, but then it's never talked about in the church. What's preached about in the pulpit, it's never about that. And so in essence, what you're saying is, well, it's important right there, but it's not important right here. We have better things to focus on. There are more important and pressing issues than that. And so what's happening literally is a whole generation is growing up on the silence of this issue. On the silence of the church to speak out truth of God's word. And so they say, well, it's for that right there. We have people in government who will take care of it. We have a few people right here that are doing a prayer meeting. But it's not for the for the wide body, for the for the whole body. And many, many, many people have placed their side on politics. And this is where offense comes in. See, they think that the government is the main pulpit where this message needs to be preached. That the government is the one that needs to stand with Israel. That the government is the one that needs to support Israel. But they won't preach it in their church. They won't talk about it in their sermons. And so what they've done actually is that they've placed their trust, their eyes on politics, but said, we can't deal with it on, on a church level. It's not for us. There's nothing we can do. And they've lost the reality of just, the, that, just the reality of opening their mouth and prayer and the power and authority that that holds. And they said, well, it's for politics. It's for the government, but it's not for the church. Most people won't understand what we're talking about anyways. Most people won't understand the theology. Many people might not even agree, so they're going to leave the church. While I was, while I was uh, worshiping, and I just got on my knees, and I, I felt the heaviness of God's heart. Um, I've never felt this before, but I felt the compassion that God has for His church. And I started hearing just the words of God saying, they're going to find themselves against me. They're going to find themselves with offense, and I want them, but they're going to be offended. They're going to be offended. They're going to find themselves fighting against me. But I want them so much. If they would just see, if they would just believe the truth. And I felt this compassion and the love of God for His people, and how much He desires that they will not find themselves offended or fighting against Him on that day. Because the Word of God says that He will gather the nations against Jerusalem and He will fight against those who fight against it. This is so much more than just political. In many people's eyes, this is a lot of politics. It's very emotional. It distorts the image of God's justice. How can He choose a people who are doing this or doing that? And they've placed their trust on people that don't even know who God is. They don't even know who Jesus is. They won't even accept Him. 
And what happens is they will be offended. They will be offended. And that offense is going to destroy your heart. When you are offended by why Jesus does what he does, it will destroy your faith. And so many will be offended on that day. What's interesting is that within uh, Revelations 12, he goes on to Revelations 13 to talk about the persecution of the saints. And it's actually happening simultaneously. So it's interesting how on one side you have the persecution against Israel happening and the word and, and the, the flood that's coming after Israel. And then at the same time you have the persecution against the saints. Is that a coincidence? Could that, could that be related? Could it be that one day saying that you stand with Israel will cost you so much more than what it does today? Could it be that one day that decision will have implications on your faith. That saying that you stand with Israel will have implications on you standing with Jesus. That they are related. See, it doesn't mean you have to be against, for example, for a lot of people, if they're pro-Israel, they're going to be against the Arabs. See, that means that in their mind it's political. It's not based on the truth of God. I am pro-Palestinian and I am pro-Israel. I love both people. We pray for both people. We work with both. We organize a yearly conference that brings in a lot of Arabs and Palestinians and brings in Jewish people to worship together. Did you know that in Muslim countries, like in the West Bank or in Gaza or in some other Muslim countries, you can be a Christian as long as you don't say that you stand with Israel. For them to say that they stand with Israel will cost them their lives more than to say that they stand with Jesus. That's incredible. But that's the way it works in Muslim countries. Could it be that one day saying you stand with Israel will have more implication on your faith than saying you stand with, it, with Jesus? There was a pastor in the West Bank who, um, he's been a pastor for many years, but they've become very outspoken about standing with Israel, about loving the Jewish people. And that's very politically incorrect. So he's been uh, disavowed by the PLO. He's been disavowed by many Christian churches. I know a house of prayer in Lebanon that they can't talk about Israel in the house of prayer. So what they do is they call it Disneyland. So they talk to each other saying, man, I wish I could go to Disneyland. I've been praying to go to Disneyland because they never know. They've had people there from Hezbollah. One of their leaders was a terrorist in Hezbollah and got saved. Um, but they can't talk about it because that is more dangerous than just the fact that they're Christian. The fact that they would say that they love Israel is more dangerous to them than saying they love Jesus. When I was in Turkey, it was the same thing. When I was in Turkey, we were doing a birthing house of prayer conference and Rick told me, you know, this church is, is taking a great risk by hosting this conference and even by you being here, you know, we, we didn't really talk a lot about Israel and I shared for about 20 minutes on praying for Israel and I shared this scripture and he said, Rick said, it's been a fight to really get into the churches. And many churches don't want to talk about this because it's risky for them. If they talk about Israel, you know, you can talk about anything else. But if you talk about Israel, you might offend a lot of people within the church. But you might bring them persecution from outside the church. That's incredible. The fact that you can actually love Jesus, but the fact that you cannot love Israel. Because that's more dangerous. Because that's worse. 
there's something that carries more weight than that statement because Jesus loves his people and the enemy will do anything he can to destroy his people anything and he will do anything he can to bring offense into the Christian family into the into the churches into the people of God he will bring offense into their hearts so that they cannot love his people with a true heart Matthew chapter 26 I'll finish with this in Matthew chapter 26 we see an interesting um, just an interesting story where Jesus is in his last uh, kind of the last time he has it is the last time he has with his disciples he's about to be arrested and he tells his disciples stay awake with me he tells them the time is short stay awake with me and they don't really realize what's going on. And they fall asleep. He comes to them, he says, stay awake with me. They fall asleep again. He comes back and he says, stay awake with me, please. They fall back asleep, they fall asleep again. And he does this three times, and then in the last time, he says, you can sleep later, but the hour is coming. Stay awake with me, pray with me for one hour. that moment Judas comes with the army and they arrest Jesus and the disciples they run away now if you can imagine when you're asleep and that first moment you wake up it's one of your weakest moments where you're kind of not aware of your surrounding what's going on sometimes you say something stupid a lot of times I'll say something stupid I wake up, I'm like, uh, what, what? And it's so hard to get up in that moment. It's so hard once you're asleep to wake up. You're like, just a little bit more, please. And right at the moment as they're waking up, in their weakest moment, instead of staying awake, they were asleep. And at their weakest moment, this army comes against them, and they all run away. Now, I don't know what would have happened if they would have stayed awake. That's speculation. But let's ask the question, what would have happened if they would have stayed awake? What would have happened if they would have been there with Jesus praying as he was on his knees and he falls on his face. It says that he falls on his face and he begins to sweat tears of blood and he begins to tremble. He was probably shaking from pain and agony. He knows he's about to die. He knows the torture he's about to go through. But more than that, he knows he's about to go into hell for three days. He knows what's about to happen. And there's this groan in his spirit. And he wanted his disciples to be there and see his heart, to experience what was about to happen and to be aware of the hour they were living in. And he tells them, stay awake with me and pray with me. I want you to see my heart. I want you to see what I'm about to say. And if they would have been there with him and, and heard that prayer where Jesus says, if this cup can be taken from me, but not my will, your will be done. If they had heard those words, what would have happened? Would they have stood there with him? Or would they have still run away? I don't know. But I, there, there's something in the story. Jesus wanted them to discover his heart. And he was telling them the most important thing. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. It's about to happen. We are nearing that moment. You need to stay awake and you need to pray. You need to pray. 
And instead of falling asleep, God is calling us to be awake and to be aware of what's about to happen. We need to experience God's heart. We need to experience the urgency of the hour. We need to hear those words out of Jesus' mouth. The hour is near. And it's interesting that that phrase, one hour, could you not stay awake with me? The only other place that that one hour is in is in Revelations, I think it's 11 and 17, where it talks about one hour of judgment and one hour of Babylon falling. The term one hour pertains to something in Jesus' heart concerning the end times. That's what I think. He wasn't saying those words by accident. He wasn't saying those words by accident. And he doesn't tell those words to John either by accident. That in one hour, behold in one hour, great judgment has come upon you. Behold in one hour, the city of Babylon has fallen. And God's calling us into this one hour, this one last testing, this one hour that He is going to test our hearts. And He's taking the church into the valley of decision where they're going to have to make up their minds. And we have to make up our minds where we stand. And it's so much deeper than political. It is so much deeper than just standing with a physical nation. It is about standing with God's people and with the promises of God's Word. It's about believing that His kingdom will be restored on the earth. That's what we're fighting for. That's what we're here for. And if we are able, by the grace of God, if we can stay awake and just see His heart and hear those words, the time is near, the hour is urgent, that grace comes upon us where we can stand. In Revelations 12 and 13 it says, this is the call to endure to the end. This is, twice he says it, this is the call to endure to the end. And we have to stand. We're going to have to fight. The church is going to have to fight for unity. Because the enemy is going to come like a flood to bring division. And to bring offense. And to split the church into two. And the church is going to have to make a decision. That they're going to stand on covenant. They're going to stand on unity. Amen. I want to finish with a prayer. and I don't know if we have time, but I would love to do some Q&A after this. If you guys want to stay, uh, we can do about 20, 30 minutes of Q&A. Is that fine? Uh, you guys can just ask questions. If you want to know how to pray for Israel, what's happening there, you want to know about um, I can maybe share a little bit about what we do. Um, but if you want to stay, feel free. If you want to go, feel free to go. Hallelujah. Abba, I just ask that you would come and, and just confirm and plant this seed, this word in our hearts. I had this dream the other day. I wasn't planning on sharing this. I had this dream the other day where I was, I was in Israel. I don't dream a lot. When I have a dream and I remember the dream, it usually means something to me. So I was, I was in Israel and, and I was in an army uniform. And I found this hole by the border, by the Syrian border. And this hole was going into the other side, into the Syrian side. 
and it was like a connection between the two nations that was underground it wasn't seen and I remember I wanted to go into this hole and go into Syria because I wanted to serve the Syrian people I've been praying for them for a long time I've been praying for the refugees and what's going on there and for the gospel to go forth in that nation like never before there's open doors there for the gospel like never before and there have been people getting saved in refugee camps like never before Syrians that have never heard the gospel anyway so I've been praying for this nation for a long time and all of a sudden I'm dreaming about it and in this dream I'm going into this underground hole where I can actually go into Syria and I want to go serve them but then all of a sudden the Syrian um, army jeep comes by and the soldier finds me and they capture me and I remember the spirit of fear just got into me and they were saying that they were about to kill me and they said this is your last moments what would you want to say and all, all of a sudden I was like I was struck by fear and I'm like this is not supposed to happen I wasn't supposed to die this isn't supposed to happen and all I could think about was well I have my wife I have my kids what am I supposed to tell them they're gonna be so mad they're gonna be so hurt I have the things that God has called me to do what's gonna happen with that and just this thing about like just regretting my decision and being and being so afraid to die saying the question that was going in my mind is was this worth it and I woke up and I remember I woke up thinking that this was real like I woke up like with this feeling like oh my gosh I'm about to die and my wife it doesn't even know it and I understand how this dream was significant about making that decision and being able to stand in the face of death that choice to serve someone else to love someone else even if it costs you everything that you would plant this seed in this house God and more than anything I believe you are making this house a place of birthing this reality into this community and into this city Abba I ask that from this house the word would go forth into the churches into the community into the small groups that it's not just about being obsessed with Israel it's not just about what well, we have to pray every day but it's about making a commitment it's about a heart decision to stand and love your people and pray for them as the Spirit leads. Abba, I ask that you would just give revelation into hearts of the love that you have for your people, of the promise that you have given them, their purpose, that you are not done with them. Abba, as we labor together, as you have appointed, as you have desired, that we would work together, labor together for the promises that you have given us. As we run together that race in unity towards that prize, towards that last moment, 
Abba, we just want to press into this promise that you will pour out your spirit. Abba, we want to press into this promise that you are about to bring revival into the nations. And here we are standing together. Abba, we know, Abba, we know that the time is near. Abba, and this is about to happen. The pieces are there. This could happen. And we want to be ready. We want to be ready to serve one another. We want to be ready to love. We want to be ready to give our lives and lay it down so that revival can come, so that revival can come into the nations. Father, we want to see your kingdom established on this earth once again. We want to see your kingdom come on this earth once again. We long for your return, Abba. Abba, we long for the day that you will return. Father, and I ask that you would raise up the voices and that you would raise up the intercessors. You would raise up the release, the mouths of the nations to stand in the gap, to pray and to speak truth about Israel and, and into Israel. To see your nation come alive with the spirit of Jesus, with the, with, under his leadership, Thank you, Abba. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. All right. So if you have a question, let's do this. So you can ask it on the mic. Um, just come up here and please work with me. Ask questions. So if you have a question, come up here. Or actually, maybe someone can give a mic. It'll be much faster. I'll just do it this way. If you have a question, come up here. Uh, I'll give you the mic. You can ask it so everybody can hear you. And then I'll try to answer quickly. I'll try to answer shortly. Feel free to ask about anything you might have on your mind, any question you have. Um, if you are leaving, there are some brochures you can feel free to take out there. Uh, and there's also an email sign-up that, that you can sign up for. There we go. We have a mic. Awesome. to know how we should be praying um, alongside you and um, just in general uh, asking others to pray with us for Israel. All right, so are you asking about um, how to pray for me specifically or how to pray for Israel? Israel and then also Okay. Um, praying for Israel, I would say um, the, e the, the main point is for God to continue to open hearts and remove um, every when Paul said that there, there, is a, um, there is a blindness over his people, that is literal. I, I have never seen uh, people who are as hard as Jewish people can be. I have seen people get healed and still reject Jesus. So there is a real blindness. It's not just, he wasn't just saying as a paraphrase. There is a hardness of heart. And the, the, the main thing we can really pray for is for God to open hearts to the gospel, to open people's eyes to Jesus. And then the other thing I would pray for is that God would continue to strengthen and um, to strengthen his body to continue to bring people, um, like people who get saved people into the body as it continues to grow um, and that he would pour out his spirit over his body. 
that he would continue to release his word, his strength, his love, and um, the authority of the Holy Spirit so that they can reach out with the gospel and live under the authority of the Holy Spirit in front of the people of Israel. Um, yes, that would be another important thing. Thank you. Uh, I would say pray for soldiers. One of the main testings for any believer, we have lost so many believers in the army service. And what happens is the youth grow up, they're passionate, they're filled with the fire of God, they love God. Then they get into this season in the army where it's three years of dryness, hard, blind obedience. I was there. It is so hard to be a believer in the army. I can't even, I, I can't even tell you how hard it is. Uh, the dryness of it and the loneliness of being alone for three years in the unit as you're the only believer there. Um, you have no privacy. You're always physically and emotionally tired. So even getting to a place where you can pray and spend time with Jesus, it takes so much effort emotionally to even get to that place where you break through your thoughts and your emotions and your negative feelings and you can actually feel the Spirit. You can feel like God is here. Oh, the Holy Spirit is in me. It is hard to get to that place. And so they have, you have to be very, very intentional to do that because you also have no privacy. The only place you have privacy is the bathroom. And so you have to be extremely intentional. And most people are just not there. I wasn't there where I could be so intentional that I'd be willing to, I don't know, go somewhere that was far away from everybody and, and do some quiet time, especially when you're really tired. Every soldier, the moment that he gets, gets a small break, he wants to go to sleep. That's our main activity. Um, so. I would encourage you, pray for soldiers who are believers. I've seen many of my friends fall away from the faith in the army. Uh, and that's one of the main things that we really focus on is praying for soldiers and then seeing people who have fallen from the faith restored. Can you tell us about what's going on uh, in the negotiations uh, with John Kerry between the Palestinians and Israel? Um, I can't tell too much because I don't know too much about it. It's actually been as quiet as, as it's ever been. Um, in the past, there's been a lot of um, leaked information, and this time around, they've actually they've kept it pretty tight. Um, what I what I do know is that one of the main debates is about the land exchange and how that can work, which is one of the toughest issues to settle. What are going to be the borders and what land can be exchanged? I can't. I won't go into it more than that because it'll be a really long explanation. And then the other thing that's a big issue is the Jordanian border and who will the Jordanian border belong to because of security reasons that's always been a big issue um, Israel is very concerned about it but that's been one of the main issues that has divided um, and caused um, what's called like a stall it stalled the peace talks and then another thing is who will um, Jerusalem belong to how, how will Jerusalem be divided this is nearly impossible they want East Jerusalem as their capital, but the reality is that there's about 200,000 Jewish people living in East Jerusalem. So you either have to move them or there will be Jewish people living inside a Muslim capital of the West Bank, which is very hard to believe that it will happen. Um, and then who will the Temple Mount belong to? That's another big question. And part of the talks and part of the suggestions that Kerry has come up with that are a little bit ridiculous is that the whole old city inside Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is a city of about 700,000 people, 750. And what they want to do is that the whole old city would actually not belong to Israel, but it will belong to the UN. And it will come under um, 
international supervision, which is pretty ridiculous because it, there's so much history in that place uh, pertaining to Israel and the Jewish people, and they wanted to, in order to satisfy the needs of, or what the Palestinians want, which is actually that whole area, is they want to put it under international rule. Um, that's a big that's a big issue that Israel will probably never say yes to, but the Palestinians are demanding it. They want it, and it's it's causing a lot of stalling. Oh, and then one more thing that's also one of the main issues that stalls everything um, is that the Palestinians want a right of return to Israel. They want to be able to bring back their families or um, people that have left Israel. They say that they were kicked out, but the reality is that many of them fled Israel when, when Israel became a nation. They actually promised freedom, uh, but the Arabs left. They were promised a better place in the Muslim world. And then what they realized is that when they left, they just gave up the land to Israel. And now they're demanding to go back and receive their houses back or the land back. And it's places where cities have been built, um, families live today. It's just a little bit ridiculous that it will happen. Um, but they, it's about, I can't remember the exact number, I think it's about 4 million Palestinian people that they say have the right to return to Israel. Now that's pretty serious because there's only about 2 million in the West Bank and Gaza together or actually 2 million in the West Bank. There's 2 million Palestinians in the West Bank and if all 4 million come back, that increases their number to 6 million, which is actually more than the Jewish people living in Israel itself. And that's a serious concern. Not only that, but also the fact that within those people that have a right to return, many of them, many of them have been involved with terrorist organizations, many of them live in extremist uh, Muslim countries, and so, I mean, you would literally have to allow people to come back from Lebanon, from Syria, from Jordan, from Egypt. And what they're afraid of is that many of the terrorist organizations will take advantage of this and send people into Israel. Okay, thank you. Amory. I've heard that, well, wow, hello. I've heard that final, the final temple, the preparations for that are underway. Do you know anything about that? Or what can no, you say about there's that? been a lot of speculation about it. Um, I met once a religious guy who ended up coming to the faith, and he was actually being trained to be a priest in the temple. Um, they have like this weird cult that's really secretive, secretive, and they're like training people to actually serve in the temple when it's restored. Um, the temple right now belongs to Jordan, not the temple, sorry, the, the land where the temple was, the Temple Mount, belongs to Jordan, it doesn't belong to Israel. If Israel was to take control of the Temple Mount right now, that would be the cause for World War III. So that will not happen anytime near. The only time that can actually happen, and this is part of the incredible, uh, what the Word of God says, that there will be peace for three and a half years, and that there will be a temple on the Temple Mount again, now you have to understand the dynamic that's real, that is going to have to be a miracle. It's going to have to be a world leader that has some serious um, ability to negotiate and make peace and delusion and how to lie and use his words. It's going to have, have to be someone who's really able to uh, convince people about the way he does things. Um, it's almost like he's going to have an anointing for that to negotiate and make peace in a very impossible situation 
where peace cannot happen. I mean, if, if Israel was to ever build a temple or take control of the Temple Mount right now, it would be World War III. I don't know how many of you guys heard about the Antifada, what that was. It was about a season of two years where there was bombings almost every day uh, for two years. Well, that started when uh, Ariel Sharon, he was the president or the prime minister of Israel, he went up to the Temple Mount. And just the fact that he went up to the Temple Mount, it was like a political declaration. It got the Palestinians absolutely furious. And that's what started the Antifada that same day. And for two years, they continued to bomb and uh, do all kinds of attacks, terrorist attacks in Israel, and thousands of people died. And it was because of that one act. I mean, it was a process of a few years, but that one act sparked it all. Uh, something that had been brewing underground for a long time, and then the act of actually going up, the Prime Minister of Israel going up to the Temple Mount, it was like a declaration of war. So, again, if you look at the Word of God and what that says, it's going to have to be a miracle, and it's going to have to be someone who has some serious capability in negotiations. curiosity question um, I know the religion is predominantly you know practicing the Jewish faith but is there a lot of like agnostics and atheists and stuff in actually it's not predominantly religious faith it's predominantly secular very very oh. very secular um, only 25% of Israel is, is uh, religious okay you have to separate the idea of being Jewish is not just about religion it's more of an identity Okay, so you can be Jewish and still be Buddhist, you can be Jewish and still be Christian. So for some people they see being Jewish as a religion, yes. For most people, seculars especially, they're like, yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm secular. So it's more of an identity thing. So most of Israel, 75% is secular, and they're extremely secular. I mean, I'm not, they are extremely secular. Uh, they have taken it to a next level because um, we're so influenced by Western society. I mean, I, I don't... I don't know what life is like here, but there it's like normal for 12, 13, 14 year olds to uh, be sexually active. They start smoking when they're 12. Uh, there's 50% divorce. It is very normal for a kid to grow up in a single family, like a single parent family. Um, there's a lot of brokenness. There, it, it is a very secular place. I mean, that, I cannot exaggerate that. And then there's 25% that are religious. And within that 25%, about 10%, so if you take that 25, 10 out of it is probably what you call the extreme religious, which is the black hats, black coats, uh, the whole deal. Anybody else? What? Come on, I knew you had a question. Uh, what would be better to go to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Love Concert, if, well, especially Conference. for young people? Conference. Um, if you go oh. for the Feast of Tabernacles, it will be extremely expensive. Oh yeah, second question is, when are you going to invite Catherine to do music at the Love? Once we connect you with the leaders at Sukkatalel, yeah. <laughs> well, we have Corey Asbury coming this year, so you have some serious competition. No, <laughs> um, no. I, I, there's no I, competition. I, I, there's no right it's answer. It's the upper room. Yeah, there's no right answer to that, but I will say in September, that's what's called high season, and the prices go yeah. The best season for tourism, if you guys are interested, it would be November. So, I mean, can you expand a little bit on that, the love? Yes. The we do a yearly conference called the Love Conference. It used to be called One Thing. <laughs> I'll go if you'll go. Um, so it was pretty much based on One Thing and what they do, and we've invited, um, we've always invited foreign people to, um, foreign, I mean a lot of people from IHOP, um, to teach or to do the worship 
And what we do is, uh, at first it started with just being a conference for Israelis, and over the years it's evolved to be a conference for Israelis and Arabs and Palestinians together. Um, so we bring uh, Israeli Arabs and we bring Palestinians from the West Bank, uh, about 150 of them, and about, uh, about uh, 150 Israelis who are there. And usually the conference is about 800 people altogether. And it's a conference just to worship, uh, teaching. We want to see revival break out among the young people. Um, we want to see the Holy Spirit poured out. I mean, I can't, that's about it. I mean, that's pretty much what the conference is. And we do teach a little bit about the House of Prayer. We've done some uh, workshops on the House of Prayer and what that is. And we, this year we're going to be focusing on that even more because we believe that God wants to bring in more musicians and more intercessors into the House of Prayer. Our, our verse for this year's conference is actually Psalm 110, which is, your people will be willing in the day of your power. Um, Rick was here and he shared a little bit about the Love Conference and some of the testimonies. I've been involved with that for many years and have been able to share, uh, teach, be a part of worship teams, and it's been an amazing, amazing experience. My life has been transformed by this conference. It's where God called me uh, the first time, and it's, I've been serving and being involved with it um, for six years now. And I'm part of the organizing committee um, for this year. Be praying for the conference. We believe that God has something very, very significant this year for, uh, for what we're doing, um, especially within the unity of the Arab, the family and community within the Arab and Jewish, um, like the relationship between the two groups of people. And we've talked about reconciliation in the past, but what we're seeing is that for example, you have such a big push for anti-Israel and replacement theology within the Palestinian churches, and many of these young people are just, they have such a wrong teaching about what, what Israel is and how to love Israel. And then they're also filled with offense because many of them grow up in a very negative environment. And so we're actually going to be organizing um, something before the conference to bring a few of the Arab leaders and, and Israeli leaders together uh, to just spend a weekend together to pray, to worship, and then these people are going to lead a time of um, a workshop on loving each other, on, co on community living, on relationship, and how to build that, um, and also a time to talk and just pour out our hearts about how we feel on, on what's happening. And we feel that this is going to be very significant uh, to, give a, to give a place where people can really pour out their hearts without being judged, without being hated for it, and where we can receive each other the way we are with whatever we have to bring in our hearts and accept it and then pray for each other. Um, for someone who doesn't know a lot about Israel, yes, but knows or who wants God's heart for Israel, what are some... Like, what's some literature or, like, websites that you could point us to that yes, we can start say, looking at? I would say uh, Don Finto's Your People Shall Be My People is probably the best book for anybody who has never heard about the subject. Don Finto. I have that book. You Don can borrow Finto. it. Okay. Yes, it is probably the best book you can read to start out with. Don Finto. F-I-N-T-O, Don Finto. Your people shall be my people, or shall be called my people, something like that. It, it is a very, very good book, and Don Finto is a very solid Bible teacher. He's been teaching on this for 30 years and has really done 
an amazing work within the Christian church on, on pushing this. Um, he's been one of those voices about Israel, and he's living it out. I mean, we see him in Israel every, like, five or six times a year. He sends their interns called the Caleb Company. They send them to live in Israel for a season. Um, they are serious about it. Yeah, it's a great book to read.